Welcome to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone, the podcast where we highlight nonprofit leaders in the trenches who share the strategies and tactics they use to grow their organizations and make a difference each day. As we like to say, if you want to be discouraged by a general sense of decay, read the news. But if you want to be inspired by concrete stories of growth, talk to a nonprofit. Here's to the modern day superheroes, the nonprofit leaders. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. We're here with Sharon Hammetz. She is the Director of Development and External Relations at Casita Maria Center for Arts and Education. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to jump into a lot of fun topics here. And as has become our tradition, we will dive directly into the thick of it. I was wondering if you could tell us a story of a dramatic or exciting or climactic moment that has happened in your development career. Uh, every two weeks when payroll is due. <laughs> so, so other than that, honestly, it's not, there's not a lot of really climatic stuff in development in general at my organization now. We're basically a two-woman show. It's me and an associate. So it's just a lot of relentless deadlines. It's actually sort of the opposite of drama. It's just grinding along and getting it all done every day. And then, you know, you finish a big project and sometimes you get a big check. And that is my favorite thing in the world. Absolutely. And that's a fair description, probably not necessarily climactic, but certainly grinding at times. Um, And (laughs) it is nice to have those moments of, ah, a check came in. This is all our work is worth it. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and the story of how you got to where you are today. So it was definitely not on purpose and definitely not linear. I didn't start out my career saying, I want to be a development professional. I can think it would be fair to say that when I graduated college and decided I was going to go into quote unquote nonprofit work, I didn't know what a development professional was. Hmm. So I wound up actually doing... After I left school, I wound up doing some work in Africa for a while. I really kind of was very peripatetic around the world for a couple of years. And then I came back to the States and I was doing, I wanted to do program work. You know, I wanted to be the one running the programs, not necessarily being an administrative person. And then I wound up at an organization, youth organization in Brooklyn a ridiculously long time ago. I'm not going to give away my age by saying how long ago that was. And the director of that organization essentially said, look, this is what I think you would be really good at. You're organized. You 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 can write well. You can figure out all of this stuff. So let's take you on. I'll teach you how to be a development director and administrator. And I did that for about three years and found that actually, yeah, that was more where my talents were. And it was sort of humbling at that point to realize I'm not a good program person. Hmm. I don't run programs well. It's not where my head is at. But where my head really is at is explaining programs and the work we do to other people. And while it's not the glamorous part of things, it's very necessary in a sort of nice behind the scenes administrative role that when I realized that was where my talents were, I said, okay, this is how I'm going to make my contribution to the world because hmm. I was always what someone has once called an, a mission-driven person. You know, I never wanted to go into for-profit work ever. I've never had a job outside of the nonprofit world in my life. 
So, you know, I, I moved on from the youth organization in Brooklyn. I wound up at a Planned Parenthood affiliate for a while, which was wonderful because that's how I learned how a large organization should be run. Mostly I work for scrappy little nonprofits and you know, when you just don't have the capacity to do all the things you really should be able to do for your workers. So working at Planned Parenthood for a while, I was, you know, I sort of got to see the other side of it where you take care of the people who work for you and you pay them living wages and all of that stuff that we would really like to be able to say we do. I then wound up at a food nonprofit for a while, which was more entrepreneurial. It was more like a startup. So mm -hmm. I got to see all of that. And after increasing their budget about five times over about five wow. years. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was entrepreneurial, very fast growing. I left there and consulted for a while. And I landed at Casita essentially because it was run by a friend of mine from a different organization. And I happened to get really lucky and get in touch with her pretty much the day after her development director had left the organization. Wow. Yeah. So like I said, it wasn't linear. It wasn't the plan when I started out, but I do feel like it sort of accidentally found my calling. And, you know, I've been, but I have been honing a lot of skills that you wouldn't think are necessarily important in a development director. I think the most mm. important thing is that even if I wasn't very good at it, I did run programs for a little while. So I understand how they work and I understand how to explain program language in, you know, to regular normal people. And I learned how to work on a team, interdisciplinary team. And all of that stuff is much more important than, you know, it says in like the job descriptions for development directors. <laughs> That's so true. That is such a cool story. And I appreciate Thank you, you kind of giving the context <laughs> of how it evolved. Not that it was, you know, planned out in advance, but it does seem like in hindsight, it does give you a lot of cool different perspectives that you can bring now to the current work. So yeah. I love it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'd love to learn more about Casita. Is there a story that you could tell maybe through the eyes of an individual or a family or someone that's been interacting with the organization that sort of crystallizes for you the impact that it's making for the community? Oh, there are so many. So Casita Maria is, uh, we're in the middle of Hunts Point in the South Bronx, which is the poorest congressional district in the country. So, and we've had, the community has changed over the last 10 years or so. It was for a very long time, almost exclusively African-American and Puerto Rican. But we've had a lot more immigrants from other countries coming in over the past, I guess, decade or so. So it's a very incredibly diverse community. Also, you know, very economically disadvantaged and in the current climate, honestly, it's our population specifically is experiencing a lot of hardship, we'll put it that way. So we have about a thousand kids coming in our doors over the year for our after school and summer programs. And Casita really is an oasis for these kids, you know, away from all of any of the violence on the streets or in their lives or, you know, substandard housing and all of the issues that go along with that. We've had numerous kids come through sort of in the younger grades that are dealing with, you know, issues like bullying or even 
LGBTQ issues that they're coming out or whatever, and they're having problems in school, mm-hmm. um, which don't translate here. I think one of my favorite things that we ever heard was the principal of the school where we actually have the sixth floor on a building that we share with a middle and high school. And the principal of the school once said to my executive director, you know, I don't understand why these kids are not having disciplinary issues in your program. They have all of these incident reports in school, but you guys aren't making any reports. And, you know, we're able to say, look, they just, they're so happy here that the same thing just doesn't happen. Mm. And, you know, that does translate because these kids are, you know, there's a specific narrative being told about poor young kids of color in the Bronx. They're no good. They're belonging cages. They just live in, you know, they're all violent and they're all going to be criminals. So we're really trying to change the narrative there and show what's beautiful about this community through mostly through their arts and culture. And, you know, just remind these kids that they have incredible potential and provide a place for them to explore it. So, you know, in our kids, 100% of the kids who graduate from our college-bound program go on to college, which is, you know, versus about 50% in the Bronx. Don't quote me on that statistic. I'd have to look it up. Sure, sure. But yeah, I think it's not really just one story, but it's basically knowing that I'm working for this incredible oasis of talent and, you know, art and beauty in the middle of a community that's having its challenges. Sure. Absolutely. That's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that. Changing gears a little bit to focus on the fundraising and the development side that makes all that great work possible. (laughs) Are there strategies or tactics that you've found to be particularly helpful in your development work or sort of tips that you could share with other people that they might have success deploying in their own contexts as well? Yeah, I think it does depend on the kind of program you have, what your strengths are. For us, The first thing we always do with a new potential donor or any kind of supporter is invite them up here for a visit because, you know, anyone who comes in the doors, they see our art gallery and all these smiling kids learning, you know, violin or dance or visual arts or whatever. And they always, after their visit, they're so excited and just want to stay involved. And, you know, so for us, really, it is about that introductory visit to the center. And then, you know, obviously a lot of follow-up. We haven't been, honestly, we need to improve on that. And we know that because, again, I'm a two-person, well, I'm a three-person show, but I run marketing and development. So I have one other person helping me with development. So, you know, in addition to really selling people on the program, there's just figuring out how to follow up with all these people in the right way that doesn't have, that, you know, allows me to sleep five hours every night. (laughs) right right nothing to do fortunately there's not not many items on the to-do list which is nice (laughs) if only for an organization like yours where do most of the new donors come from are they finding you online are they hearing about the center in another way what does that typically look like we just we're having a fire drill i can't believe it hopefully they won't make me leave this is so real life i love it i know (laughs) i'm in the middle of a school Okay, I'm sorry. Would you repeat the question? I was just um, no, it's distracted. good. So the question was, where do most donors find out about you? How do they get connected to the organization initially? 
the individual donors, a lot of it is through our board. We have a very active board that's been with us for a long time. So they're the ones who give us a lot of the sort of the high-end donors. We're also trying to step up our press game so that people will read about us in like the Bronx Times and all of the local papers. You know, we just do a lot of writing and outreach. And I mean, the other thing for us that's interesting is that our part of the Bronx is, for want of a better word, gentrifying. So there's a lot of companies coming in that want to give a good impression to the population. And we have been around for literally 85 years. So we are known as a trusted organization. So a lot of corporations have been, you know, reaching out to us. So I do have to go on this fire drill. I am hoping that I'll keep my connection. All right. So we're back from our unexpected fire escapades. So just another day in the life, but we are going to die. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Pro-con game. I know. It's just like, you can't make this stuff up. And the question that we have to debate today is, how important is it to stay on brand in terms of consistent messaging? So Sharon, would you like to take the side that that is really important or that is not as important as people think? I'll take the side that it's important, I think probably with some caveats, but yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, would you like to make an opening statement for us then? Sure. So I became... When I started this job, I was supposed to be just the director of development. And then I just took over the external relations part to make sure that our marketing and development messages were at least matching. The idea of staying on brand within a nonprofit always sort of makes me laugh because, you know, that makes you think that you've got some great branding organization to pay tons of money to to give you, you know, a brand identity, which of course we don't. But I think the really important thing is to figure out what the narrative is that you want to come out of your organization and stay and stick with that. So, and you know, it's with that, with everything else, it's the same thing. We're building this plane as we're flying it. At least for us, you know, our narrative is all about changing perceptions of the South Bronx through their arts and culture and making sure that these change perceptions also begin to reflect on the young people that we work with so that they're also not thinking that they have no future and they're all going to, you know, either become single parents or criminals or all of the other myths that people tell about places like Hunts Point. So that's my general introduction to it. Not as well thought out as I would have liked, but there you go. <laughs> that's great. No, that's perfect. <laughs> I'll now do my best to argue against it. Wouldn't you say that for smaller organizations in particular, if we focus on smaller nonprofits that have very constrained resources, can't it sometimes become an excuse for inaction? And I'm sure this is not the case for you guys, but I feel like I've seen I think there's a certain amount of messiness to operating a small organization and a certain amount of opportunism where maybe everything won't perfectly align with the brand, but it's an opportunity and it needs to be pursued and building the sort of bureaucratic process to get every word that goes out through the brand committee or whatever can slow down progress instead of accelerating it. Well, again, that's more about the building the plane as you're flying it thing. The idea of staying on brand also helps a lot to avoid mission creep. And a lot of what you were saying did start to sound like mission creep, you know, saying, well, we're going to deal with this or we're going to address this issue. 
it's not really what we do. It's not in our strategic plan. It's not in our mission, but it's an issue in the community. So we're going to deal with it. That is a huge temptation for everybody because we all see how much need is all around us. Having said that, if you go, if you address everything, you don't address anything well. So in a lot of ways, staying on brand is a great way of holding yourself accountable to what you have said you're going to do in the community, what you plan to do in the community, and what you're good at. I love it. That's a good perspective. We'll give you the win there. Thank you. (laughs) I hadn't thought about the strategic concept, too, that the brand not only helps other people understand you, it also helps you as an organization understand yourself and the impact specifically that you're trying to make. That's a great point. Thank you. (laughs) Fascinating. Sharon, if you could describe yourself in only one word, what would you say and why? Probably relentless. That's perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, talk to us about that. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think it's, you know, in this business, especially, you just have to keep going at something until it's done. And I can't say I'm always very nice about things. And I can't say I'm always very organized. But I can say that I will keep at something until it's done. And until I get the funding that I need, or, you know, make people do what I want them to. Sure, sure. Right. Yeah, done is better than perfect. And yeah, done often takes overcoming some roadblocks that may stand in the way. Like fire drills. Right. (laughs) During podcast interviews, of all things. Is there an exciting shift that you're seeing taking place in the nonprofit world that you think is really positive? I think the one thing that I'm starting to see that I find uh, very encouraging is that there are at least institutional donors who are starting to think about the value of providing general operating dollars and the destructiveness of focusing so much on people's administrative costs. You know, we've started to call it the nonprofit starvation cycle, where we never have funding that we need to support everything that we're doing. And the back office suffers the most. So, you know, your finance people, your development people, your computer situation, all of that stuff that, you know, funders often don't think is important to the programs is actually vital to being able to run your programs well. There has started to be a shift among some institutional donors. There were five big foundations that got together about a month ago and put out a statement about you know, specifically calling it the nonprofit starvation cycle and what they can do to alleviate that. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's interesting to think about how it would be very easy to have an incredible administrative ratio if, for example, you didn't buy anyone a computer. Saves a lot of money, but exactly. does that increase the impact? <laughs> <laughs> I would guess it does not if I had to go out on a limb to take us back to the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah. thank you. That, that is really, that's an encouraging shift that we're seeing as well. Thank you so much, Sharon, for taking the time. And I know that you have, as mentioned before, a lot of things going on. So we really appreciate you spending some of your day with us. Where can people go online if they want to learn more about you or they want to learn more about the organization? So the organization is at www.casitamaria.org. It's uh, Casita is in C-A-S-I-T-A-M-A-R-I-A.org. I am not fabulous with social media, but people can find me on Facebook or on LinkedIn. 
I love it. I can empathize. I am not fabulous with social media either. Um, it's very sad. But anyway, thank you, Sharon. I really appreciate you persevering through the, the fire one. <laughs> thank you. To be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I am sorry about the fire drill. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Growth Show presented by Nonprofit Megaphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast network. We appreciate your support. Until next time.